Morning, everybody. Hey, before we get started with our sermon today, um, I wanted just to take a minute and pray together for this horrible disaster that's happened in Turkey and Syria. Um, it can feel, I know many of you guys will resonate with this, I know I do, it can feel like there's something to mourn, some tragedy happening constantly in our world today, but, but rarely do we see something of this truly, like, I mean, cataclysmic magnitude. I checked um, this morning, and as of two hours ago, the death toll has crossed 33,000. And, um, and so the, this is going to continue to be an, an ongoing humanitarian disaster. And so I just wanted us together, collectively, to pray for that. So would you join me in doing that before we get started today? Father, I, um, I, I, I rarely even know what to say or how to pray when something like this takes place in our world. And so, Lord, we start by just acknowledging that, that this world is not as it should be. This is not the world as you designed it to be. And Lord, we just pray that you would reveal yourself as you truly are in and through this situation. You have been, throughout all of human history, taking horrible, disastrous, nightmare situations and causing good and beautiful things to occur out of them. And so, Lord, I just pray that that would happen in the midst of this. I pray especially, Lord, for the church in these countries, um, both of these places, particularly Turkey. We, we know there is a tiny, tiny percentage of Christians, and so I ask that your spirit would enable them to, to have a, a massive, disproportionate impact for good during this time, that your gospel would shine forth in the midst of darkness in places where you have not been known broadly lately. And Lord, I just pray that, that your church, your Christians in these places would do incredible, mighty things in your name that would glorify your Son. And Lord, again, as the world watches, we pray that there would be opportunity upon opportunity to, for your goodness and graciousness and mercy for you as the God who heals and loves and cares to be revealed. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. And as Christians have always prayed when things like this happen, we ask that you would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Thanks for, for joining me in that. Um, the good news is, on the heels of something heavy and difficult like that, we get to turn to what is probably the harshest and most brutal teaching of Jesus in the entire New Testament. So uh, it's a perfect compliment. We have been in this series, um, the section of the series that we're calling Return and Reckoning. And this is what's happened so far. We've had Jesus arrive in the event of the triumphal entry. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as we talked about, every single aspect of the way that he chose to do that was designed to communicate that this is the king of Israel arriving. He's here to claim his throne. After that, we saw a series of prophetic sign acts where Jesus is in the prophetic tradition doing these symbolic actions that are communicating God's judgment on the leadership of Israel. So these are things like casting the money changers out of the temple, cursing the fig tree. After that, there was a series of parables and disputes, all of which, were, both the stories and the argumentation, all of which drew attention again to the judgment upon Israel's leadership in the time of Jesus. And so ever since Jesus's arrival, the reason we called it return and reckoning is because it's like the king is back and what the king is bringing is an indictment against his people. And today, we see the kind of crescendo of that. This is, all of this has been leading up to the most direct and dramatic confrontation you're going to get. It's also the beginning of the very final discourse section of Matthew's gospel. So if you've noticed, for the last couple of years as we've been going through, you'll have sections that are primarily discourse, where Jesus is teaching, and then sections that are more action, where Jesus is doing things. This is the beginning of the final discourse section, and it is a doozy this week and next week. So buckle up. And uh, it's long. It's a long section, but I want us to get all of it. So we're going to have to move a little bit more quickly through the verses than usual. But as always, when Jesus has something to say, talking to the Pharisees, talking to the Sadducees, it doesn't matter who it is. When he has something to say, there is something for us to learn from it. So let's jump in. It's Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So Jesus is not messing around <laughs> right out of the gate. This isn't a parable. It's not a story. It's not an argument back and forth. He's addressing the crowds and his disciples, and he says, I'm here to talk about the Pharisees. Now, just a reminder, we've talked about them a little bit before, but this entire section is about 
and directed to the Pharisees. We need to know who these guys are. The Pharisees were a religious group within Judaism. There were several different ones. Last week, we saw the Sadducees, which were a different group. But the Pharisees at the time of Jesus were the most popular with the common people. They emphasized really rigid, strict observance of Jewish law, both the written law, which is the the Bible, our Old Testament, and observance of what they called the oral tradition. And this was the kind of different traditions and interpretations that rabbis had made of the Bible over the years. So they observed both really strictly. That was kind of what defined them. Really meticulous observance of all of the rules. And so they didn't have like priestly connections. They didn't have kind of formal political control. All of their influence, which was very significant at this time, had to do with their popularity with the people. The common people identified really closely with the Pharisees, looked up to them, and wanted to in many ways imitate them. Many, and again, you can't speak unilaterally about like what every Jew in Jesus' day thought, but among the people, this was a very popular movement. And so Jesus identifies them as those who sit on Moses' seat. And what he means by that is these are the people who have kind of taken the traditions and teachings of Moses, the Old Testament, the law, and they are the interpreters and the ones who are kind of adjudicating that. And so Jesus has kind of this good thing to say about that. He goes, that's good. You should listen to what they tell you. Listen to them as they interpret for you and tell you how to live as faithful followers of God. But don't do what they do. You've heard the phrase, practice what you preach, right? Did you know that's where it comes from? This verse. They preach but do not practice. That's where we get that phrase. And so Jesus is saying fundamentally, right at the beginning, you should listen to what they have to tell you, but don't do what they do. And the reason for that, he's going to... For the next like 39 verses, he's going to just say deeper and deeper reasons why you don't want to do what the Pharisees do. But the kind of summary statement at the beginning is that they take these laws, they take these traditions, and they make of them heavy burdens that are difficult to bear. And then they put them on the backs of the people, but they don't do anything to help lift them. And so this kind of do what they say, but not what they do sets the tone and the paradigm for the rest of what he's going to say. But he's going to go on to unpack more and more what it is that they do that you shouldn't imitate. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. A few of these things are historical details and religious practices of, of Jewish people that are really interesting and worth understanding. So the phylacteries that he's describing were little leather boxes that contained scraps of scripture in them. And that came from a command that God gave in Exodus where he says, um, maybe metaphorically, but they interpreted it literally, to bind the commandments, the teachings of God upon your hand and your forehead. And so they, they took that as concretely as possible. And many Orthodox Jews still do this. And they would take little leather boxes with leather straps and put verses in them, and then tie them on their foreheads and their hands. Very beautiful practice to remember the law, to have it close to you. The fringes were similar. These were kind of tassels that hung down. I say were, but again, Orthodox Jews still do this today. They, would have, they have tassels that hang down from one of their garments, and as your hands touched them, they were meant to remind you of the commands of God, of the faithfulness of God. They're really beautiful practices. But what Jesus says is what the Pharisees like to do is make giant ones right? So you don't just, it's, it's no longer about the intention. The, the whole idea was remember the commandments of God, remember the faithfulness of God. So it's all about God. It's meant to direct your attention to God. Jesus says they just have they, have, they want the longest fringes. They want the biggest phylacteries. They want, in other words, everybody to notice their piety and righteousness. So it's no longer about remembering God, remembering his commandments, remembering his faithfulness. Now it's the opposite. It's about attention for me. And that's already starting to get to the heart of what Jesus' complaint is. Because everything they do is about being seen by others. They want the best seats. This comment of the best seats kind of brings to mind something that happened earlier in Matthew's gospel. You'll remember at one point, James and John came to Jesus. Depending on the gospel you read, sometimes it's really, really clear it's their mom who asked them to do this, which is awesome. I've always loved that detail. Their mom's like, go ask Jesus for the thing. And so James and John had come to Jesus on the side, apart from the other disciples, and said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, when you claim rulership, we want the best seats. We want to sit on your right hand and on your left. And Jesus now is going to tell all the people essentially the same thing that he told them then. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. 
Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's a very famous verse. Jesus says similar things in other places. And that is, that last verse in that section is kind of the core of the point he's trying to make here. Same point he made to James and John when they asked for prominence. He said, other people want to lord their authority over each other. That's what people who don't know God do. For you, it's not supposed to be like that. The Christian is not supposed to seek prominence. The Christian is supposed to make less of themselves, not more. So it's not really about like forbidding. It's not like you can't call your dad, dad. That's not the point Jesus is trying to make here. The point is all authority in the church comes from Jesus. You have one father, you got one teacher, and any earthly authority is by definition delegated authority. It's from God. And your leaders in the church today, just like the point he's making here, should not be seeking prominence. It actually, the verses like this show what a dangerous position someone like me is in right now, right? <laughs> that the whole point is, if you're seeking to exalt yourself, you're in danger. You need to be making less of yourself. And so again, it's, not, it's very clear in the rest of the New Testament. There are people who are supposed to teach. There are people who are supposed to lead. But all of them do it through delegated authority. And this is the key. We're not supposed to be making disciples of ourselves. We're supposed to be drawing people's attention to God. Don't have the long tassels and the broad phylactery. Don't make it about you. Make less of yourself and make much of Jesus. So when we teach here... We're not trying to make disciples of, of Isaac or Sam or Greg or Kevin or anybody. It's disciples of Jesus. And Jesus has set over and over again the trajectory that it's not supposed to be making much of yourself, making yourself bigger. The greatest makes themselves the least. There's this incredible equalization here. Now, here's the thing. I've been moving super fast because these opening 12 verses are just like the intro to the main event. It's like the preamble where Jesus is sort of going, this is what I'm going to be talking about, folks. And now he's going to move into the main section, which is a section we call the seven woes. Jesus is going to pronounce seven words of judgment upon the Pharisees in a very formal way. And here's the thing. We've talked in previous weeks about how Jesus, during this section of Matthew, is like standing in the prophetic office, in the prophetic tradition, right? He, he comes in and he does things like casting people out of the, of the temple, like cursing the fig tree. These are prophetic actions. In this moment, when he starts pronouncing seven woes upon the leadership of Israel, he's doing that in the most like dramatic, transparent way imaginable. Because about 600 years before this, a very famous prophet had done the exact same thing. Isaiah, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 5, this is again hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born, had stood up and pronounced judgment upon the leaders of Israel, and he had done it in the form of seven woes. So for Jesus to start pronouncing woe is not just him speaking out of nowhere. He's taking that same office of Isaiah and giving the same kind of words of judgment now 600 years later. It's really important to understand how this is supposed to work and what this word even means because we don't even use the English word woe very much anymore. And if we do, we just mean kind of like sadness or Sometimes we read it like in this context and think just judgment. But the Greek word that's behind the word woe, it's a hard word to say in Greek because it's all vowels. You say it like lie, lie, or something like that. Lie, that word, it carries notes of judgment for sure, but also notes of like tragedy and sympathy. So it's not just like an anger judgment thing. It comes from a heart of, of sympathy and love. And the tone is more like tragic than it is just angry and judgmental. And so the, the woe that Jesus is pronouncing isn't just like, you're going to get it, although that's in there, you're going to see. The woe also carries this, this nuance of, of sadness. It didn't have to be like this. How tragic that it's become this bad. So Jesus is going to start one by one laying these out. And here's the thing to understand as we begin. When he goes through the woes, you're not really seeing like seven different complaints that Jesus is making. Jesus is actually building one primary complaint and showing several, seven different examples of what it's like. And you're going to see they're like all these incredibly provocative, dramatic images associated with them, but they're all building one central point that will become clearer and clearer as you go. My favorite kind of comment on how you're supposed to see the woes comes from a 19th century British theologian, Alfred Plummer. He said, the woes are like thunder in their unanswerable severity, and like lightning in their unsparing exposure, they illuminate while they strike. 
That's exactly right. As you read, these, these are meant to do two things at once. They're meant to reveal something. That's what he means by unsparing exposure. They reveal a problem that might be hidden or that might be unacknowledged. And at the same time, they actually, in revealing that, speak judgment to it. So there's severity and exposure. They illuminate while they strike. And the reason I wanted to show that quote is because while the, the initial audience receiving these woes is the Pharisees, you, if you have your eyes open and your heart open, and if I have my eyes open and my heart open, it's going to illuminate and strike us as well, and it should. So I want to encourage you, be open to the exposure and the severity of these seven woes. Fun stuff, huh? Happy Sunday, everybody. <laughs> Number one. Again, we're going to go quick because there's a ton. The first woe. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. No parables anymore, right? <laughs> woe to you, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. There's something really interesting going on here. I wish we had more time to, to get into the details of this, but I said earlier, this is the very beginning of the final discourse section of Matthew. This is the last week of Jesus' life. The story is almost over. This very first woe maps on to the very beginning of Jesus' first discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. If you go all the way back to Matthew 5, you have Jesus beginning the Sermon on the Mount. That's his first discourse. This is his final one. And the first one begins, if you're familiar, with the Beatitudes, which are eight blessings. So Jesus and the Beatitudes speak, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. He begins his last discourse, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And the very first one maps on almost perfectly. The very first Beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Anybody know? The kingdom of heaven. But woe to you, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You see that? Jesus is almost bookending the same idea. The poor in spirit, the humble, the ones who come to God desperate and in need, the kingdom of heaven is for them. These people who tie up heavy burdens and put them on the people's backs, not only do they not get into the kingdom of heaven, but they shut the door in people's faces. I mean, that's a vivid image. And you're going to see every single one of these woes has some kind of metaphor that's incredibly powerful and easy to picture. But you picture them. They sit in Moses' seat. It's like they've got, they're guarding access into the people of God in some sense. And Jesus says, when people come and they want in, not only do you not let them in, but those burdens you tie up that are heavy to bear, that is effectively slamming the door to heaven in their faces. Meanwhile, 18 chapters ago, Jesus said, the poor in spirit, when they come to God, the kingdom of heaven's theirs. But if you're like these Pharisees, not only do you not get in, you don't let other people in either. It's powerful. The second woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Tell us what you really think, Jesus. <laughs> We're going to talk about it, don't worry. Many of you I know are not used to hearing Jesus talk like this. It's important that we do. That's why we preach whole books of the Bible, right? Now, this, these words are, are weird and kind of foreign to us. It's talking about proselytes, and a proselyte was a non-ethnically Jewish convert to Judaism. So a Gentile who became religiously Jewish. And that, that was a category they had back then. There's actually kind of two broad categories for Gentiles who are seeking the God of Israel. The first is what the Bible describes as God-fearing Gentiles or just God-fearers. And once you kind of have your eyes open, if you're reading the New Testament, you'll see them all over the place. And a God-fearer was a Gentile who in some way was drawn to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. He wants to know the God of Israel, and maybe he's doing some things to try to kind of get on board. Like, you know, maybe they're coming to the temple, to the court of the Gentiles. Maybe they're obeying some of the laws, the, the moral laws primarily, probably. But they haven't gone all the way. They haven't taken on like the Jewish dietary restrictions. They haven't cut themselves off from the Gentile world. They haven't been circumcised, which was a, a, obviously a very dramatic mode of entry into the people of Israel. So the God-fearers were people who desired to know the God of Israel, but they hadn't actually gone all the way into becoming Jewish. A proselyte was somebody who had. That would be a Gentile who, and by the way, there were tons of God-fearers. They're all over the New Testament. There's, a, there's good reason to believe that there were quite a few Gentiles who were seeking the God of Israel. These actually were probably exactly the kind of people who Jesus is saying the Pharisees are slamming the door in their face, right? A proselyte, though, that's a Gentile who's gone all the way in. 
He's been circumcised. He's cut himself off from his former way of life. He is striving to follow all the laws. He is effectively Jewish. We don't really know historically how common this was. We also don't know. It's interesting. This verse is one of the only places where you see an indication that there was actually intentional like missions work happening to try to gather in proselytes. We don't know how common that was. But a proselyte, again, that's somebody who's like, they've gone all the way in. Jesus' main critique here seems to be that the Pharisees, when there's a proselyte, they want to gather a Gentile in and bring them into the people of God. But instead of bringing them to God, they bring them to Phariseeism. Does that make sense? They're not making converts to the people of Israel. They're not making converts to Yahweh. They're actually drawing people in and turning them into Pharisees instead. And again, you've got to track the whole kind of flow of thought here. What do the Pharisees do? Well, they tie up heavy burdens and then they don't even carry them. They don't even go into the kingdom of God. And and Jesus is going to keep talking about why that is. But his point here is, yeah, you go really far to try to get a proselyte, but then when you get them, you don't even teach them how to follow God correctly. Instead, you turn them into what he calls a child of Gehenna, a child of hell. A child of, we talked about this earlier in the series, so I won't go back into it, but a child of the burning trash dump where the people of Israel used to sacrifice their children to false gods. It's dramatic language. The next one's really happy, though. I'm just kidding. It's totally not. There aren't any. The third woe. Woe to you, blind guides. Pay attention. He he says he's going to call them blind three times in this section. Woe to you, blind guides. So that tracks with what he just said. You're leading people astray. You blind guides say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. That's God. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, rather than get into like, because this, this is a pretty weird one. It's, it's pretty detailed and it's unclear. This is kind of the important thing about this. It's unclear whether Jesus is identifying something that was actually happening in his day. Meaning, were Pharisees actually saying, no, don't swear by the temple, swear by the gold in the temple. Or if he's exaggerating to make a, like a rhetorical point. But the point is really clear, even if the kind of historical context isn't. The point is, And this is starting to get at the heart of what all of these woes are about. The point is, they care about the externalities rather than what actually matters. They care about what is external rather than the truly meaningful spiritual thing behind it. So they don't care about the temple, they care about the gold of the temple. They don't care about the altar and what it represents, they care about the gift that's put on the altar. They don't actually, they just want you to swear by the gold, not by the God who dwells in the temple and makes that gold sacred. For them, again, this is We're closing in on the core of what the issue is. For them, it's the thing on the outside that matters, not the thing on the inside. And Jesus is going to drill in even deeper to that same idea here with the fourth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. How good is that image, by the way? Jesus, is, he wants you to picture this, so picture the image. And two important things about the camel. The camel was the largest animal in this area at this time, and it was also an unclean animal in Jewish thought. So it's, Jesus is saying, he wants you to picture the Pharisees going beyond the requirements of the law, which this would have been, and straining out their wine just to get, make sure there's not any kind of tiny thing in here. Gnat, the word for gnat, is, is like the common rhetorical smallest possible animal, just like camel's largest one. So it's not necessarily about an actual gnat. He's like, you're trying to strain out every tiny little detail, and then you'll happily swallow an entire camel. And it's pretty vivid. It's hard to get a, a stronger image of missing the forest for the trees, right? That's how we might say it in the modern world. And what he's talking about is this really hyper-meticulous detail to, again, external things and things that aren't as important. And when I say not as important, that's significant because it's not that they're not important at all. It's that they're not as important. Now, things like mint, dill, and cumin, the kind of like 
small crops, the thing that you as a Jewish person might have a tiny amount of, most people probably weren't tithing on those things. Um, everybody, you know, anybody who's a faithful, pious Jew is going to tithe on their primary crops, the big things they grow, the animals they raise, that's what they're going to tithe on. And there was, there was rabbinic debate about everything, but there was specific rabbinic debate at this time. The rabbis would argue about whether or not you had to tithe on those smaller crops, and if so, how much and which ones. So if you want to go have some really fun reading, you can go read rabbis debating about, you know, which of these things do we have to tithe and how much. And so Jesus has specifically chosen the kind of like controversial things, the things that many people wouldn't have tithed, wouldn't have even thought you had to. And he goes, you guys, you have this incredible, meticulous detail about these tiny little things. And it's not like that's a bad thing. But in the midst of that, you're ignoring the main things of the law. And this, again, if you're thinking Isaiah, you're thinking the prophets of Israel, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness are always at the core of their indictments against Israel. So Jesus goes, you're not merciful. You're not loving. You're, you're not seeking justice, which, which in the Jewish mind means not only to punish the wrongdoer, but also to raise up the one who's in desperate need. You don't do that. You don't care about mercy. You don't care about justice. You don't actually care about faithfulness, covenant loyalty. Instead, you focus all your detail on all these little meticulous things. And again, follow back everything he said so far. You make new converts think that that's the stuff that matters. You tie up these really heavy burdens for them. And meanwhile, you're neglecting what actually matters. And the image he has for that is somebody really carefully straining out their drink to make sure there's not some tiny little thing in there and then turning around and just eating a whole camel. The fifth and sixth ones go together. They're kind of in, the second one's kind of an intensification of the first. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So you see these two different images of the same basic idea. Now, a couple of historical details that are really important to understand this. When he talks about a cup or a plate that's clean on the outside but dirty on the inside, he doesn't just mean like there's dirt and grime and stuff. He's talking about ritual ceremonial uncleanness which for the Jewish world at this time is an incredibly important category, right? So if something's unclean, and you, as a pious, law-observing Jew, come in contact with that unclean thing, for a period of time, you're going to be cut off from the religious life of Israel. This, is, this has been the case all the way since Moses. So if you come in contact with a dead body, you come in contact with an unclean vessel, all ki- there's all kinds of different ways it could happen. It wasn't even necessarily a bad thing. It probably happened to people all the time. But if that happens, you can't now go and participate in a a festival. You can't go into the temple. You probably can't go and just do some normal, even social things until you've gone through your period and rituals to make make that uncleanness go away. That make sense? So the whole idea here is it's way more strong than just like you clean the outside and there's a little bit of dirt on the inside. What he wants you to picture is you guys are meticulously cleaning the outside, but inside it's unclean. Not just dirty, but ritually, ceremonially unclean. And again, for the Pharisee, this is a strong indictment, saying you observe the external cleanliness but not the internal. You guys are, I'm sure you're seeing how he's building one point about them, right? This is where the metaphor is getting extremely obvious. Clean on the outside, unclean on the inside. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the next one is like as, as harsh a metaphor as you can imagine. Again, there's a historical note here. A whitewashed tomb at the time of Jesus was a regular thing. In fact, it would, they all would have been whitewashed as Jesus is saying this. And here's why. I just talked about how you can't come in contact with something dead without becoming unclean. Now, if you're traveling to Jerusalem for Passover during the month of Adar, and that's what's happening right now. It's Passover time. If you're traveling to Jerusalem, there's tombs all over the place on your way in. And so the last thing you would want to have happen, you've traveled all the way there just to participate in the Passover festival, right? The last thing you want to have happen is on your way into Jerusalem, accidentally touch a tomb. Like say you get too close and bump up against it and realize, oh, that's a tomb. Now you can't go to Passover. Your entire reason for traveling there is ruined. So what seems to have happened, we have some different historical records of this, 
is that the Jewish people during, the, during festival times like this one would go and whitewash the outside of the tombs. And they probably looked really beautiful, you know, these shining white things in the sun. But the main point was, when you're coming into Jerusalem, you can see them all and avoid them. Does that make sense? So <laughs> imagine you're a Pharisee, and your entire like, system of religion is all about avoiding things that are unclean, super meticulous observance of the law. You always want to do everything right. And Jesus goes in the, seventh, or the sixth woe, you want to know what you're like? You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're clean on the outside. You look nice on the outside. You're like a really well-washed cup. But what's inside? Dead bones and all uncleanness. And if you understand the, the like, historical background of that, part of what he's trying to say is to the crowds, be warned. Treat this like a whitewashed tomb. Looks nice, but you don't want to get too close to that. This is incredibly harsh. To tell a Pharisee what you're like, is a tomb filled with unclean, dead, rotting bones is about as strong as you can possibly get. But believe it or not, there's a seventh woe, and it's even worse. Last one. You guys are seeing, though, right, the point Jesus is making. He's building one single critique and giving example after example. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets. You can see the connection he's making. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. A few things that are really interesting about this. We talked about how the first woe maps onto the first beatitude. Remember this? Blessed are the poor, they inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. But woe to you, hypocrites, you don't enter the kingdom of heaven, you shut the door in their faces. The same thing happens here with the last beatitude and the last woe. Because the last beatitude is, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. In the seventh woe, he says, you are the ones who persecute the righteous. It's again the exact flip side of the last beatitude. It's so incredibly common all throughout human history, very common in our day, to look at the deeds of those who came before you and say, oh man, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have been like that at all. I would have had my exact values that I have right now, not the ones everybody had then. And I wouldn't have been like that. I would have been better. So Jesus puts in their mouths, if, if, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in killing the prophets, killing the righteous. And Jesus tells them, this is so powerful. He goes, you're like whitewashed tombs. And speaking of tombs, you're surrounded right now by the tombs of the righteous prophets who your forefathers murdered when God sent them to you. And you decorate them and you beautify them and say, oh, it's so sad that they were killed. We wouldn't have done that. Well, guess what? Not only would you have, you're about to again. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, the greatest prophet. God himself is present with them. He goes, you think you wouldn't kill the prophets? Just watch. Now he finishes this section by, by taking that idea and kind of pulling the Pharisees into line with all of their forefathers. And it's brutal. You serpents. Is there a stronger condemnation you can imagine in the Jewish mind? You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, now this is Jesus, by the way, stepping into like the most dramatic prophetic mode ever. Now he's speaking as God. He doesn't say God sends. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in their synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. <sighs> Serpents, vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus says the entire history of Israel is God sending you righteous prophets and you mistreating and murdering them. Remember some of the parables he said, the wicked tenants who every time the, the owner of the vineyard sends servants, they kill them and cast them out. And he goes, this, it's about to happen again. The people I'm going to send, you're going to do the exact same thing. 
And then this is so dramatic. It's like, like the fever pitch is just rising at this point in this discourse. And it's like he said, he lays at the feet of the Pharisees the righteous blood spilled from the beginning of Israel's history. Abel. It's the son of Adam and Eve. He goes from Abel to Zechariah. We told that story just a couple of weeks ago. All of it belongs right here. And again, he's not just saying that's something you might do. He's actually identifying exactly what they are about to do in the most dramatic way it's ever happened. So that's our sermon for today. Um, Have a great... (laughs) This is hard, right? And how many of you are like, this is, I don't like this. I don't like Jesus like this. Let's go back to like Jesus with a lamb on his shoulder and Jesus saying like, let the children come to me and, and blessing the children. Here's, here's what you need to know. It's incredibly important. That is Jesus. The, the, the lamb, the, you know, the let the children come to me, that's Jesus. But if you want Jesus to just be loving in one particular way, I would suggest to you that you have an immature, undeveloped idea of what love actually is. Because love, true love, desires the ultimate good, the highest possible good for the object of their love. You want the best for that person. What does that mean? Is it always niceness and happiness in that situation? How many of you are parents? Can you love your children well and only ever smile? Probably not. Now, I want to acknowledge this, this can be very hard for many of us because based on your background and your upbringing, you may never have seen, you may literally never have seen an example of healthy discipline that comes from a heart of love. That might not be something you have in your history. But what you need to know is that Jesus, speaking these woes, is speaking in love, from a place of love. We're going to see he's not done. There's actually one more thing we're going to look at that makes this very clear, but I, I want to save that for the end. But again, if, if I look at my children, who I love, and one of them is mistreating the other one, it never happens, but hypothetically, like if that happened, <laughs> they're perfect. But if, if the older one were to be mean to the younger one, hypothetically, it w- I, I would not be a good dad if I was like, oh, come here, let me give you a hug. I love how you were just taking your sister's toy. You know what I mean? No, Jesus in Revelation and God, all the way back in Proverbs, says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so if you want the whole picture of Jesus, it's not like, oh, there's loving Jesus and then there's disciplinary Jesus. It's all loving Jesus. And you have the tenderness and the love, the, the child holding, the no, 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 don't send the, don't send the kids away. I love these children. And the God who looks upon his people who made promises to God and didn't keep them and says, your behavior is sending you directly toward Gehenna. A loving God speaks the truth in that situation. The Jesus that actually loves these people comes with woes, not just with hugs and handshakes. So it's important to see that. And that's why, again, that's why we try to preach through whole books of the Bible pretty regularly. Because let me tell you, if we were just picking passages from Matthew to preach a sermon on, Seven woes probably aren't going to make the list. But you preach the whole story. This is part of the character of Jesus. To look at his people and say, we're not just going to act like this isn't happening. I'm not going to watch you look at the tombs of the righteous prophets and say, oh, it's so sad how they died. And not say, you're exactly like the people who killed them. And you're about to do the exact same thing again. First to me and then to my followers. So this is Jesus acting in love with sympathy. And again, in a minute, we're going to see a really clear example of why that's the case. But before we do that, we've got to talk about the kind of central idea. Because all these woes, again, they're all circling around one primary problem. And if you were paying attention, you saw this word over and over and over again, right? Hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said that in this section, surprise, surprise, seven times, right? Called them hypocrites. And hypocrite, um, it's a really interesting word. That English word hypocrite is just a transliteration into English of the actual Greek word, Hippocrates. And Hippocrates has this really weird history because back in the classical Greek world, like the original literal definition just meant one who answers, just meant somebody who answers somebody. But over time, this is what happens with all kinds of words. It happens with English words too, um, in every language. They kind of evolve their meaning by how they're used. 
And so hupokrates, over time, in the classical Greek world, came to uh, signify an actor, because it was about like the, the answering of dialogue in a play on stage. So the actor is the one who answers. So over time, that just gradually became the main re- meaning of that word. If you say hupokrates, you're talking about an actor. But originally it was positive, or at least neutral. It's just like, that's how you say actor. By the time of Jesus, which is hundreds of years later, Hippocrates had come to mean just a negative metaphor of what an actor is. It just means somebody who is playing a part, somebody who has a front, somebody who's acting in a certain way, but hiding their actual feelings, their actual motivations. So it's the person who smiles, but behind that smile, there is hatred or anger. It's the person who wears a mask on stage. You get how the metaphor works. It's somebody, and this is the key, it's somebody whose inside doesn't match the outside, like a whitewashed tomb or a dirty cup that's clean on the outside, or like somebody with really long tassels and phylacteries who nonetheless doesn't care about mercy or justice or faithfulness. So Jesus says, what's the main problem with you guys? You're hypocrites. The inside and the outside don't match. You got all this great external religious observance, and inside, dead bones. Now, do we in our modern world have any way of relating maybe to the idea of somebody who's different on the outside than they are on the inside? Not me, Lord, right? Here's my favorite example of this. Many of you will remember this. Five years ago, there was a pop-up high-end shoe store in Los Angeles. Those of you who are blessed with not knowing what a pop-up high-end shoe store is, let me explain. (laughs) A pop-up just means it's not there forever. In this case, it only was going to be in LA for two nights. Really big deal. It was called Palesi, and they invited like Instagram influencers and like shoe people to come and check it out. Really high-end stuff. You can see from the picture, it's super beautiful. Shoes in that, in that store are everywhere from like $200 to $600, right? Now talk about a hypocrite. I read about this store and I'm like, $200 shoes, that'd be crazy, unless they're for running. <laughs> then it's like two, $230, no, no problem. So these, these, are, these Instagram influencers show up, they love it. They're taking pictures, they're buying shoes for 600 bucks, they're talking about, look, how, look at the quality of the shoe, having a blast. Now, how many of you already know the story? A few of you guys. Here's the problem. Palessi doesn't exist. Palessi was actually opened up by Payless. Now, you see that Palessi, Payless, pretty clever. Payless, for those of you not familiar, is a shoe store that's famous for selling like $20 sneakers. That's why it's called Pay Less. And every shoe in Palessi was a Pay Less shoe. Meaning somebody bought a $600 pair of shoes for a 1,800% markup, right? And again, go online. You can watch videos of people being like, you can just really see the quality. And the... These are people who wouldn't be caught dead in Pay Less, right? And so it's really smart. Payless had this great idea. They made a commercial out of it. This back in 2018. Great marketing strategy. Their point was, our shoes are so nice, even people with discerning taste can't tell the difference. But the better point, I think, that they made on accident was about the people who shopped there, right? What did they care about? They didn't care about the shoe. Turns out they don't even know the difference. They cared about what was on the outside. The outside didn't match the inside. And these folks didn't care. The externality was what mattered to them. Alfred Plummer said, that the seven woes illuminate as they strike. And I would invite you today to allow them to do that. This is not a hard thing to apply if you're honest. But being honest can be really hard, right? Where in our lives... Is there a massive disconnect between what's on the outside and what's on the inside? Where have we prioritized external behavior, maybe even external religious behavior, but inside our hearts are actually not in alignment with God? And maybe we know we're neglecting greater, weightier, more important forms of obedience. We're ignoring them and neglecting them, but making sure we keep up the external appearance. Jesus says, woe to you, hypocrites. Some of us, this could be about relationships. It's, you know, in one setting, I'm really nice to these people. 
In other settings, I mistreat them or I lie to them or I speak in a way that's not godly to them. But nobody would have to know that because externally it's not like that at all. Social media is like one of the best examples of this. You know what I mean? Where you're like, check out that person's Instagram. It's like they have the best life in the world, right? Facebook makes it look like it's all like vacations and happy times and I'm just so happy here with my boo and blah. You know what I mean? But we all know it can't really be like that. Where are we prioritizing the external and ignoring the internal? And obviously the most dramatic direct example of this has to do with sin. I mean, part of what's being said here to the Christian, I believe, is, look, you can go to church, you can wear a cross necklace or a Christian t-shirt and say all the right stuff out, out of your mouth or on, on the internet, but you know you've got, not just, and I'm not just talking about like sin that you're struggling against and you've got people helping you and you're fighting it, I'm talking about the flagrant sin that you know is against the will of God and you're doing nothing against it. The stuff that you know is not the way God would want you to live. TV shows you know God wouldn't want you watching. Lies that you know God wouldn't want you telling. Pride, arrogance, judgment that you know doesn't comport with the Christian, but you're just letting it ride. As long as the externalities are in place, nobody knows. The simplest lesson from this entire section is God sees through 100% of that. I'm telling you, we all already know that, but it's amazing how easy it is to get stuck in a pattern, right? Or no, keep up the externals. Don't think about what's inside. I would invite you to hear these woes and ask yourself, where in my life am I the whitewashed tomb? Looks great on the outside, but inside, unclean. Now, here's the good news. Jesus has one more thing to say at the end of this. And it puts all of these in the proper perspective. I'm not an Aramaic scholar. I don't really know Aramaic at all. Um, but Aramaic scholars say that this in Aramaic sounds like a funeral dirge. It's really powerful to me. Um, this is Jesus. He's completed the seven woes. And he's about to move into a new section. And this is how he ends this. He suddenly stops addressing the crowds, addressing the disciples, addressing the Pharisees. And he speaks to Jerusalem itself. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Next week, we're going to talk about this house desolate and this not see me again stuff, because we're going to get into the Olivet Discourse. But what I want you to see here is the heart of God in this section. Jesus has just pronounced all these woes. And how does he finish it? He doesn't go, and that's why I can't wait to crush you guys. No, he ends it and says, all I have wanted is to care for you. How long have I desired to gather you? Remember, there's a metaphor after metaphor, whitewashed tombs, right? Straining out an ad and swallowing a camel. The final image is a mother hen gathering the little chicks under her wings. That's how you're supposed to picture God. What's God want? To gather you under wings, to shelter you, to care for you. He goes, how often have I wanted this? So again, this Jesus speaking as God. It's incredibly powerful. He goes, for thousands of years, I've been sending you people, trying to call you back, and you keep killing them. And all I want to do is gather you and shelter you and protect you. This is why the woes have to be heard with sympathy and love. Jesus isn't like, let me tell you why I'm about to kill you guys. The entire message is, all I want to do is shelter you. I've been trying to gather you in, but you will not do it. And so here's the, here's the simple conclusion of this entire idea. If you are feeling the illuminating strike of the seven woes, what do you do? Do you despair? Do you give up? No, 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 no. You pray along with the psalmist. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. So Christian, or even more so, those of you who may not be Christian, but you're thinking today, I actually need this, this shelter. What do you do? You don't despair. 
You don't say, well, I'm just a whitewashed tomb. Might as well just take off the whitewash and be a regular tomb. No, you cry out, be merciful to me. I want to take refuge. I want to come under those wings Jesus just talked about. That's what I want. I want that protection. And I recognize in myself that, man, on my own strength, I am the hypocrite. I'm the one paying $600 for $20 shoes. But I want refuge from the storms of destruction. And what you need to know is that if you come to Jesus with that request, the answer is yes. Unqualified, period, yes. Because it's not about you becoming less hypocritical today. It's not about you suddenly getting all of your act together and and being exactly the same on the outside as you are on the inside. The answer is, I need shelter. Who can give it to me? Jesus says, I will. I've done it. I've already done it. And so we come to this incredible image that we we have every single week of the broken body of Jesus given for you, of the blood of Jesus poured out for your forgiveness. And and I want to take an opportunity today, um, just for a couple of minutes, and as we do this, I want to invite you, before we take this, um, to, to look and search within yourself. Look within your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where are these areas in my life that, man, I have just got to get it under control. I've got to be honest. Maybe I have to literally go to a pastor or a trusted Christian friend and reveal something that is the bones inside the whitewashed tomb. But ask yourself, what might God be asking you to reveal? Not because you need that to be saved. This is what you need to be saved, the broken body of Jesus. He already did it 2,000 years ago. There's a spot for you under the wings of God right now. Amen? But let's take a minute, search our hearts, and ask God to reveal where might there be a need for hypocrisy to be revealed, or for what's inside to come to match what's outside. I invite you to do that just for a couple of minutes, and then we'll, we'll pray and take communion together.